We're going to be a little bit uh, all over the Bible this morning, but we'll begin in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to go ahead and join me there, Matthew chapter 16. As I said in Sunday school, we have a very ambitious goal this morning to talk about the identity and nature and authority over the church, of the church, the mission of the church, the function of the church, trying to cover a whole lot of ground this morning. Um, So some of the references that we touch on, I'm just going to kind of run through really quickly. Uh, A lot of you have expressed to me that um, having the sermons on YouTube is helpful because you always, because you'll go back and catch the references. So if you need to, it'll be there for you later. Um, but what we want to do today, as I had talked about last week, is we want to start a um, little um, mini-series, if you will, for the next several weeks, talking about the distinctives of this church, uh, the distinctives of Flatland Bible Church. Uh, so John is going to be on pause for the next several weeks. Um, as I mentioned, my personal plea to you, please be here uh, for all of these so that we can all be on the same page as we move forward in this church. Um, Before I get too far ahead of myself, let me, let's stop and pray and ask for God's help. Oh Lord, as we have now sung your praises and even heard some from your word and prayed together, now pray again and as we turn to hear from your word, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, use this time for your glory and for our benefit, Lord, I I pray that you help me to convey this in a clear and helpful way. Lord, this is such a big topic and such a big theme. Seeing Christ's great love for his church where he'd spill his own blood, I I just pray that we can grasp um, at least some of this, Lord. That we would be able to understand some foundational things about the church that will help us as we move forward and help us to be more biblical and more God glorifying. We pray that you would help us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at our distinctives. What are distinctives? What does that even mean? Um, Perhaps you're thinking, I haven't seen a paper that says something about distinctives. What is going on here? Well, um, a lot of what we're going to touch on is what you have already witnessed and been a part of being in this church and um, coming to service. Uh, so a lot of our distinctives are things that you have, uh, you're going to be quite familiar with. What we're doing here is just kind of formalizing them, putting them on paper, and also wanting to take some time to understand the theological um, and biblical thinking that goes into these distinctives. Like, why are we doing this? Why do we do church, as they say, the way that we do church? Why, 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 why? And so that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to intentionally not tell you the whole list of them um, until we start next week. Uh, But because I I want us to really focus here on looking at the church this morning. But let's understand what distinctives are. They are theological, doctrinal, and practical commitments that make us distinct. That's what distinctives are, is what makes us distinct. Why does that matter? Well, we want to know what makes this church different than, you know, church down the road, this other church and that church. What's so different about that church? Well, at Flatland Bible Church, we take the Bible seriously. Oh, great. Well, so does Pastor Kimberly. Wait a minute. So does uh, Apostle Jim, wait a minute, we don't mean the same thing here. That's why we want to lay out our distinctives. What do we mean? What do you mean by you want to be biblical? What does that mean? Like I said last week, I, I, I can just about guarantee you that you can go to any church, find any church, and go in there and ask them, poll all the churches in the area, there's 700,000 of them, and ask, do y'all believe in the Bible? Are you trying to be a biblical church? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
there's not going to be a church that's trying to be a Christian church that's going to say, no, we don't, really, we don't really like the Bible here very much. We're trying to actually be unbiblical. That's what we want to do. You're not going to hear that. So we obviously don't all mean the same thing. It's not possible because we're doing very different things. And so that's why we want to look at distinctives. What, what are the things, the, the theological, the doctrinal, the biblical, the practical commitments that we are going to come together in agreement upon as Flatland Bible Church? This is not my church. This is Flatland Bible Church, and we all come here. We are Flatland Bible Church. So what are those things that, are, that make us distinct? So that's a little bit about what they are and why I do it. But I want to give you three very, very quick, very simple reasons of why to do this. Number one, for the benefit of visitors. Somebody who's never been here before. It, it's really not enough these days. I wish it was. But it's really not enough these days to just say, we take the Bible serious. We have a high view of Scripture. We're trying to be biblical. That's not, that doesn't really say very much these days. Because there is a lot of really, really bad teaching out there. So, for the benefit of visitors, we, we want to be identified and known for something. Now, perhaps you might think, well, we just want to be known for Jesus. Absolutely. But what does that mean? Because that's what every church would say, is that they just want to be known for Jesus. And they just want to be known about the Bible, for the Bible. Every church would say that. And that's why we want to set forth distinctives of this is what we mean. This is what we mean when we say, for the glory of Christ. This is what we mean when we say, we want to have a high view of Scripture. You know, every church is known for something. Every church is. You, you can probably think of some churches that you have been to. Those churches are known for something. We have churches in our area. They're known for something. There are churches in Scripture that are known for something. Read through 1 Thessalonians, through the greeting, and you're going to see that they were known for something. They were known for their love and, and so on and so forth. Read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The letters to the churches, those churches are known for something. So we're going to be known for something. What we want to do is take some time to lay down some distinctives and say, this is what we want to be known for. These are the kinds of things that we believe the Bible teaches, and we want to be known for these distinctives. Secondly, for the benefit of our church, these distinctives will help guide and shape the life of the church, giving purpose behind everything that we do. So that we're not just saying, well, what does Pastor Matt think? You know, or we do it this way because that's what Pastor Matt likes to do, or, or we don't sing those songs because Pastor Matt doesn't like those songs. That's a really bad way for us to do church. And that's a quick way to make a, an idol and a dictator out of a pastor. It's to say, whatever you want us to do, we're going to do everything. Give us a list of your demands. That's not, that's not good. We want to instead derive what we're doing from the pages of Scripture. So we want these, these distinctives are going to help guide and shape the life of the church so that we can understand why we're doing what we're doing. And you know what that'll do? Is give you so much more purpose on Sunday morning. Some of you drive a ways. Some of you, it feels like you drive a ways because it takes everything in your being to get here. <laughs> right? Feels like that some days. So there needs to be a real strong reason why you're doing it, why you're coming here, why you're devoting yourself, devoting your time, giving up your money, and you need to have really solid reasons for that. I don't want you to come here because you like my preaching. I don't want that to be the reason why you come to this church. I want the reason why you come to this church to be because you believe in what we're doing here. You believe in, in essentially these distinctives, that this is your understanding of what the Bible teaches. Thirdly, for the future, it helps us to keep on track in the future. Lord willing, the Lord will raise up leadership here beyond just myself. And these distinctives will help us to be able to say, does this person believe in these distinctives? 
And are they going to help? How are they going to help serve us, uh, the church, in guiding us to be true to these distinctives? Not that the distinctives are higher than Scripture, is that the distinctives are what we believe the Scriptures to teach. You understand the very simple distinction there. Our goal in this time together is to understand the biblical and theological rationale behind our uh, ministry, even really the biblical rationale behind our theology and doctrine. To understand how that theology and doctrine informs our practice. Theology and doctrine are not just things that you just do in your brain. It has practical implication. When Paul writes to Titus, he tells him, he's telling him, you want to find people and teach people to adorn sound doctrine, to live sound doctrine. It's not just for your brain. And third, once again, to come to the gathering purposefully and joyfully. If I could say it really simply, I, I hope, my genuine hope for the end of this series is that you are just absolutely excited to be a part of this church. Maybe afresh, or maybe for the first time. And that you're excited to come here on Sunday morning. Uh, now, I know that most of you, all of you, I hope, are not coming here begrudgingly on a Sunday morning. Everyone seems to be pretty joyful. But what about those days where you just don't want to? What about those days when it's discouraging? What about those days when you're having a hard time? I want you to understand why we're doing what we're doing so that you can understand the benefit that it serves you to be here and the benefit that you have, uh, the, the part that you have to play to benefit others. So that's my true hope by the end of this series. So this morning, in order to talk about those distinctives, we need to understand what does the Bible even say about the church? What is the church? What is it? Is it an organization or is it an organism? There was a, whenever I was a part of this, this uh, Baptist associational thing, and we had a pastor that came in there and said, the church is not an organization, it is an organism. And I thought about that, and at the time, I was like, wow, yeah, that's, that sounds really good. But the, the reality of the matter is it's a little bit of both. Because this organism, this living thing, needs organization. It needs structure. It needs both. But whenever we overemphasize the organism aspect of the church, we'll just kind of fly by the seat of our pants and just kind of do whatever feels right. Whenever we overemphasize the organizational aspect of church, you know what we're going to do? Is anything that works to bring people in the door. Whatever it takes, because we've got to meet budgets, we have a building project, and so on and so forth. But it's... it's rightly viewing both of those things, that it's a little bit organism and a little bit organization. So in order to understand what a church is and what it is to be doing, we have to first understand truly, in order to understand what a, a local church is to be doing, we need to understand what the church is to be doing. In order to understand what a local church, its identity, we have to understand the identity of the universal church. We have to. Otherwise, we're going to come up with completely different conclusions. So, today we're going to consider the identity of the church and um, the function, the authority over the church and then the function of the church. Now, to be sure, I, I, I just tell you, there is so much to talk about here and there's so much that we're just not going to be able to unpack this morning but I think that these three areas of, of, of looking at the church are, will at least be helpful for us to understand the footing behind the distinctives, the, the basis that we're, uh, what we're putting these distinctives uh, upon. So with that in mind, Matthew 16, hopefully you're there. Matthew 16, this is, we're going to read it and then we'll come back to it, okay? Matthew 16, looking at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We start here because this is the very first mention of church in the New Testament. There's uh, the Greek word to help us understand some of the identity and nature of the church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it comes from two different Greek words, ek, which is a preposition that means out from, and then kaleo, which means to call. And it helps us to understand that ekklesia, when you combine those two things, that the church is those who are called out from. Well, we'll get into more of what that means, but they are called out, the called out ones, if you will. It also carries the sense of an assembling together. So it is those who are called out to assemble together. And there are two ways that the Bible speaks of the church. There is the universal or invisible church. That is the church all throughout history, all throughout time. The whole, all of the Christians on the planet right now. And then there is the church local or the visible church. That would be like what we are doing right now, where we are right now. That is, the, those are the two ways that the Bible talks about the church, and that's what the word actually means. So here, as it first appears in the New Testament, it comes from the lips of our Lord, Jesus. The first time that this word appears in the New Testament, it's not in Acts, it's not in an epistle, it's from the mouth of our Lord. And what does he tell us about the church? What's the first thing that God has ordained for us to know about the church? He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, some have answered that question by taking it to mean that Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to make Peter essentially the one that the church is founded upon. This is really the view of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe in, they, uh, the Roman Catholic tr Church believes that it is the one true church in the world because of what they call apostolic succession. This means that they believe that you must be able to trace your church leadership all the way back to this moment. In other words, Peter ordained someone who ordained someone who ordained someone who ordained someone, and you have to be able to, sort of like a family tree, trace back the leadership of the church to this moment, to the apostles. Otherwise, it's not a true church. That's what the Roman Catholic Church holds. Now, that doesn't mean that every Catholic believes that, but that is what the church itself teaches. And so, this was such a, an important element to the Roman Catholic Church that during the Reformation, just as there was a Reformation, there was a counter-Reformation, the Catholic Church fighting against the Reformation, and it began at what's called the Council of Trent. And there was one particular individual, his name was Reginald Pohl, and he wrote a book called On the Unity of the Church, and he's writing this book as an argument against the Reformation. In this book, he says that the church does not exist without apostolic succession. It does not exist without apostolic succession. What does that mean? It means that they would not view this church as a true church. Because you can't trace my... You're, I'll tell you right now, you look real hard. But you're not going to trace me, my ordination, back to the apostles. It's just not going to happen. I wasn't ordained by someone who was ordained by somebody who was eventually ordained by one of the apostles. But that's how the Roman Catholic view, Church views what the true church is. And so they would interpret this passage as the reasoning for why they believe this. That's what they're taking this to mean, 
Oh, they're taking Jesus and saying, on this rock I will build my church. They're saying, look, see, we told you. He's calling Peter the rock, and the church is built upon this rock of Peter. And so if you can't trace your leadership all the way back to this rock, you're not a true church. That's why they view the Roman Catholic Church as the only true church. So the question is, are they right? Is this what constitutes the true church here on earth? Is that its leadership must be traced back to the original 12? Well, we don't have to guess the answer. To help us answer the question, let's consider the passage. And, and I want you to pay attention to the flow of thought. This morning is much more like a lesson than a sermon, okay? So get your thinking cap on if it's not on yet. But pay attention to the flow of thought. He's saying, on this rock I will build my church. But he said some words before then, didn't he? But what do we learn about the church from that statement? That whatever the church is, it is Christ's. Because he says, my church. He doesn't say, a church, the church, one church, some churches. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is the first thing that we learn about the church is that it's Christ's. It belongs to him. Whatever it is, however it's going to be defined, it's his. No definition, then, of what the church is can be formulated without consulting who? Christ. Why? Because it's his. So he tells us what it is. If I could, I'd like to add here that this also tells us that the idea of the church is not man's idea. You hear people that say, well, I just, I'm not into organized religion. Well, then you're not into Jesus. Because the, the idea of church is his. It's his idea. He says, my church. This existed in the mind of God long before the foundation of the earth. It is not as though some gifted speaker decided one day, you know what, I really want people to listen to me. It would be great if they would come and give money to this thing and I could somehow collect some of that money and then ask for more money and they could just listen to me talk for 45 minutes to an hour. That's not how the church was formulated. Nor was it formed by a bunch of Christians getting together and saying, hey guys, wouldn't it be cool if there was like some kind of social club like they have at Lake Ridge or the Rotary Club, but for Christians, you know, where we don't have to deal with all that smoking and cussing, and we could kind of come together, and maybe we could sing some songs from time to time. You know, Sister Betty can make her famous fried chicken. Wouldn't that be great? That's not how the church was started. This is Christ's idea. It's his church. It's not man's idea. That's a very important thing for us to hear in today's culture. But we also learn that Christ is committed to building it. He says, my church, and I'm working backwards here, my church, what does he say right before that? I'm going to try my hardest to put together a church. Does your Bible say that? Throw it away if it does. Does it say, I'm here, could, could you guys help me? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to build a church. He says, I will build my church. There's no guessing. He is certain. He's absolute. This is his goal. This is his mission. He is going to build his church. He's so committed to this that he goes on to say, the powers of hell will not prevail against it. That also tells you that the church is going to have the powers of hell trying to prevail against it. It's going to have an enemy. The true church has an enemy that wants to prevail against it, but glory be to God, Christ said that he's going to build his church and they will not prevail. That's why in places like Asia, where the powers of hell are trying to prevail against the church, that's why they're failing. And people are still being saved and Christians are still meeting. It's because Christ is building his church and they will not win. So is this church teaching us, is this passage teaching us that the church's identity comes from apostolic succession? 
So I want you to now try to catch the flow of the text. Peter begins, he's asking, Jesus is asking, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Here's a bunch of bad guesses. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that Christ is building his church upon is the confession that Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock that the church is built upon. It's Christ. He is the cornerstone. Yes, the apostles are the foundation. We're going to read that in Ephesians. The apostles are the foundation, but Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And the church is built upon the good confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But notice even further, was this Peter's own thinking? Was Peter smarter than all of these other people who just couldn't figure out who Jesus was? Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. What does that mean? You didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. Nobody came and told you this, Peter. Who told Peter that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God? The Father. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's not that the church is made up of all of those who just can correctly say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, hallelujah, punch your ticket, you're in. That's not the point there. The point is that it was divine revelation. It was the Father revealing from heaven who his own Son is. Divine revelation, one preacher said it this way, divine revelation is in every aspect of what the church is. Without divine revelation, there is no church. How do you figure? Without divine revelation, Peter would have said, you might be John the Baptist, I don't know. Maybe Jeremiah. I, I really was kind of thinking Elijah, actually. Because Elijah did a lot of really amazing things, and you're doing some really amazing things that I just can't explain. How do I get to that conclusion? Because Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father revealed this to you. So if it had to be revealed, that means it was not previously known. Peter did not immediately recognize Christ as the Christ, it had to be revealed to him from heaven. That is divine revelation. That it was revealed from heaven to Peter. Without that, we don't have the church. We have a lot of religions. We have perhaps a lot of different ways to think about God. But without that, there is no church. But praise be to God that he did reveal it. And that's what the church is built upon. But that's not all that makes up the identity of the church. The invisible church is definitely made up of all of those to whom Christ has been revealed. That's the point that I was wanting to make. It's the true church is made up of all of those to whom Christ has been revealed. In this sense, that he is the Christ, he is the son of living God. This has been revealed to me by God. But that's not all. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now I want to read here verses 3 through 9. Before we do, while you're turning there, verse 22 is going to tell us, we're not going to read that far, but it's going to tell us that Paul is talking about the church. He uses the plural us throughout chapter 1, 
several times, indicating that he is viewing himself as part of the church, that the church is we, it's us. So then let's see what we can learn about the identity of the church, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that's the church, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, for the pra- to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, rather, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. Did you see that? Making known to us the mystery of his will. Who's the us? It's the church. The church is built upon divine revelation. This is the same thing that happened to Peter that helped him to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is the Father revealing this. And why did the Father reveal this? It's because he predestined us in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. You might feel old, but you weren't around that long ago. Before the foundation of the world, the church existed in the mind of God and was chosen in the mind of God in Christ Jesus. But we weren't chosen without a purpose, were we? Did you see what he said? Did you catch it? I tried to point your attention to it. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you see, it's not enough just that we know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The church, the true church goes further than that has been redeemed by the blood we read in that passage and is now walking in holiness and blamelessness. Well, you say, but I sin. Yes, you do. You will never experience pure holiness on this side of glory. But you have been, as we read in Romans 8, 28 through 30, it's as good as done that you are going to be glorified. That one day, because the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, there will be a day where you don a new body that is no longer sick with any kind of disease, but much more importantly, it's no longer full of sin. And then you will be able to enjoy God the way that we ought to enjoy Him in the here and now. Why? Because you're a part of the church. This is the church. It's those who, to whom Christ has been revealed, whom Christ purchased, whom Christ is purifying, whom Christ is securing until the last day. It is all of those to whom will be gathered to Christ on the last day. The invisible church is made up of those who actually belong to Christ Jesus. He purchased us. Paul will go on to call the church the body of Christ in chapter 1, verse 23, the household of God in chapter 2, verse 19, and then we're likened to a bride in chapter 5. And those would be wonderful things to spend our time thinking about. But let me just give you one little thing from each of those. When he speaks of us as the body of Christ, it teaches us that we are to we are here, the church in the church universal is here to image Christ to the world. So the same way that Christ has been revealed to us by God, we are now trying to reveal Christ to the world. We are his body here doing what Christ would be here doing. We're not performing miracles and signs and wonders, but we are proclaiming Christ, showing forth Christ as his body. The body also teaches us in the local sense about the interdependence of one another, that we are mutually dependent upon one another. 
Just like your little thumb couldn't hop off your hand and go for a walk and then feed itself, so can, in the same way, there is no Christian who can separate themselves from the body of Christ and still be healthy. It's not possible. And then when we talk about as the household of God, it teaches us something about the mutual care and love that we should have for one another and the love and care and concern that the Father has for us. Whenever you read through the New Testament and you see one another, do you know the context that that's supposed to be applied within? First, right here, the church. One another, love one another, bear one another's burdens. All of those passages are for the church. How do you figure? Who are the Ephesians? It's the people of the church at Ephesus. Who are the Thessalonians? The people of the church of Thessalonica. Who are the Galatians? The people at the church of Galatia. These are letters that are written to churches. And so the primary context that we fulfill these directives is in the context of the local church. And then when we think about the bride, it teaches us of Christ's love for his bride, for us, and that we will be with him forever. It will be a glorious day. But one more that I want you to look at, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't get there, that's okay. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you can listen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Boy, I'd love to just unpack this for the next four hours. But Peter here is doing something very interesting. Do you know what he's doing? He's taking passages, things that God said about Israel, and he's now looking at the church and saying, this is about you. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that he would call the church a chosen race? A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Those three descriptives were given to Israel in the Old Testament. I grew up in a church where I was told that God had this separate thing for Israel. He loves his church. He loves Christians. But there was a special separate love for the nation of Israel. And then you come to a text like this and say, I don't think so. I think that there is one people of God. There is one chosen race. And it's not the nation of Israel. It's all of those who have put their trust in Christ Jesus. All of those who have been adopted into the family of God. That was, this was planned before the foundation of the world. That's who's a chosen race. That's who the, is the royal priesthood. That is who is the holy nation. So you know what that means? You don't have to give $5 to Israel every time some person comes up on the TV and tells you to do so. The church is the people of God. But it's also, so since that is true of the church universal, it ought to be true of the church local. That is why you practice meaningful church membership and why you don't just accept any person off the street who says, I want to be a member, can I have a t-shirt? Well, we need to sit down first and see, do you believe? Have you trusted in Christ? Why are we doing that? That's so mean. You guys are just elitists. No, it's that we understand that the church local cannot be different than the church invisible, the universal church. You can't be a, a member of a local church or at least we don't want to bring in members of this local church whose names are not written in the Lamb Book of Life, Lamb's Book of Life. Why? Because they're not true members of the church. You can attend. We invite you to attend. Come. We want you to hear the gospel and be converted and become part of the church. But you're not truly part of the church because the church is all of those to whom Christ has been revealed it is all of those that Christ has purchased. 
It's all of those that Christ is keeping, and it's all of those who are going to be with Christ forever. And if that's not true of you, we would love for you to visit, but you can't be a member because we would be lying. Does that make sense? Let's move to the authority of the church. Matthew 16. Thinking back there, you can turn there if you'd like to. That, by the way, is why Lloyd-Jones said that we must grasp once again the idea of church membership as being the membership of the body of Christ and as the biggest honor which can come a man's way in this world. Why is that? Because whenever you're added to the number at a local church, it is those Christians saying, we believe that you're a Christian. We believe that you believe. So that gives you an assurance of faith. The authority over the church Christ said, I will build my church. I mean, I don't think we need to think too hard about this, do we? Truly, the authority over the church is Christ. It's obvious. It's his church. I will build my church. Paul agrees with this view. Look at chapter 1, verse 20 um, in Ephesians. I'm having to jump everywhere, aren't I? Chapter 1, verse 20 of Ephesians. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Father gave his Son as head over the church, and he's spoken of as being head over the church in a very unique way. It's in a kingly way. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given all authority, all power, all honor, and he's given as head over the church in that throne Tell me, what does that make the church? It makes the church the spiritual, physical manifestation right now of the kingdom of God. Christ being our king. What is he king over? If not a kingdom. He's king over a kingdom. In a very real sense, the church is the kingdom of God here on earth. How is that? Who else submits to his kingship? But the church. The church does. Who else is under his authority? Who else serves him and honors him, reveres him as king? Well, those who belong to the kingdom. That's why we are called citizens. We're citizens of this Kingdom. Now, to be sure, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, right now we do not see all things in subjection to Christ. Well, that's indisputable. Not everyone serves Christ as they ought to. Not everyone believes in Christ. But he is our messianic king, and we are members of his kingdom. Do you remember what First Peter said? We're a holy nation. This nation has a king. His name is Christ. Christ is the authority. You may need to flick this giant fly out of here. He is the authority that rules over the church. So then, what the king says goes. He's the king. He gets to determine what the church does. And how does he rule over his church? It's in your lap. Through his word. It's not through a word from God. I don't go into a, a room and turn off the light and just prophesy in the dark and say, okay, I've got I've to bring a word from the Lord to these people. That's not how he rules. He's given us his word. We have his word. Remember, the church was founded upon what? Divine revelation. So the church continues to exist under what? 
divine revelation. What is that? That's your Bible. How do we know that? Because this was revealed by one who was divine. It's divine revelation. It's your Bible. It's not a word, a secret word from God. Christ rules over his church through the scriptures. This is the foundation of the church. Look at, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He's speaking of the church. By the way, if you look at verse 19, there's fellow citizens once again. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How is that happening? We're built upon the foundation of the apostles. What did the apostles give us? Well, they healed a bunch of people, right? That's the foundation that we're built upon, is healing, right? No. The apostles wrote down inscripturated words, the Bible. But he says the apostles and the prophets. Here's your Old and New Testament. That means that we have the full canon of Scripture today. We have Genesis through Revelation. That means that Christ rules and reigns over his church through his spoken word. It's through this. This is our authority in all matters. It's his word. So when Paul writes that the foundation is the apostles and prophets, that's what he's talking about, is the words that were given to us by the prophets and by the apostles. Look at 1 Timothy. We're going to try to speed way up here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Where? In the household of God. What's that? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul tells Timothy that the purpose of his letter is to instruct this young minister how it is that people are to behave in the household of God. In other words, how they are supposed to behave in the church. This tells us, for one, that the household of God is another name for the church. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Paul tells Timothy that he's laying out a blueprint, if you will, by which the church is to conduct itself. Who is Paul? An apostle. What are the apostles? They are messengers sent by who? Christ. Side note, this one's just for free. That's why there's no apostles today. You see someone who calls himself apostle, you can kindly say, no, you're not. You might be a preacher, you might be a pastor, but you're not an apostle. Messengers who are sent by Christ, they were given the, the ability and the authority to write down inscripturated words. And Paul is saying, as I'm writing down scripture, this is how you're to conduct yourself in the household of God. You catch the flow of thought there. Christ reigning, sends the apostle, writes a letter, and says, this is how you conduct yourself. You might as well say, this is what the king says about how to conduct yourself. This is a, one of three of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. And you know what's very interesting is that in all three of those letters, there is a very similar statement in 2 Timothy, it's chapter 3, verse 16. And you know this passage. All scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for reproof, for rebuke, for exhortation, and for training in righteousness. What is he saying? These words are profitable. This is how you are to conduct yourself in the household of God. You know what he tells Titus in chapter 1? I think it's verse 5. I left you in Crete so that you could put things into order. In all of the pastoral epistles, the apostle, the messenger from God, from Christ, from the king, is saying, here's how you need to live. Here's how you're to conduct yourself. The point that I'm making, hopefully, 
is that Christ rules his church through the word. The authority over the church is Christ, and he executes that authority through his word. That's very important, because otherwise, if we don't have that understanding, then we will resort to what's called pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? If it works, do it. If God did not say we can't, even if he might have said we can't, then we can do it. Do you know what I heard a supposed demon slayer say recently? Speaking of MacArthur, who had a conference called Strange Fire, do you know what Strange Fire is from? Nadab and Abihu. They offered Strange Fire upon the altar. It was a conference about the charismatic movement. Do you know what this individual said? I would rather have strange fire than no fire. Are you sure? Ask Nadab and ask Abihu. Wait a second, you can't. But do you see what happens when we're not submitted to the authority of Scripture? This, by the way, is why we will not practice prophetic words. Words from the Lord. We've got some, thank you. You don't need me to go and hear a word from a good God. It's right here. If you ever hear me come in here and say, I got a word from the Lord, I got a prophetic word, folks, run, please. Or somebody stole my brain. I don't know what happened. But we don't do that. Why? Because we have the scriptures. He's already given us everything that we need. It's right here. And it literally tells us this is how you conduct yourself in the household of God, is in this Bible. So you don't need to go chase a word from the Lord. You don't need a prophetic word. You don't need a vision. You don't need any of these things. You just need to open up the Bible and read it and study it and submit yourself to it. This, by the way, is why you will see so many churches. The most pragmatic thing going on right now is women pastors. If you want to know what Paul says in the letter that's written telling you how to conduct yourself in the household of God, read 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. In the household of God, a woman is not supposed to be pastor. Women have great gifts. They are a blessing to the church. They have incredible, vital roles for the church, but they are not to be pastors or preachers. If you see one on stage on a Sunday morning teaching the church, that is a church that is brought into pragmatism over the authority of Scripture. It tells us clearly how we're to conduct ourselves. Let's look lastly before I lose my mind. The function of the church, lastly. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, this is a rock skipping over a pond. So much here to talk about. But I just want you to see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we read just a bit ago. Look at verse 15. By delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. Why do you use that word so much, Matt? Because that's literally what the Bible says we're to be. This is the pillar and buttress of the truth is the church. Well, how can the church be the pillar and buttress of the truth if we are not submitted to this word? Because where does truth come from? It, it comes from the pages of Scripture. It comes from the king's mandates. They're found in Genesis to Revelation. But whenever we say, let's kind of play with some of the rules here, we can no longer be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are, we are emptying the role, the seat. We are vacating is the word I'm looking for. We are vacating the role that we are to play in this world. We are to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That is the function of the church. So when the church is not functioning that way, it is proclaiming to the world, we are not a true church. 
well, that sure sounds mean. You know what's more mean? Is deceiving people. Today, you follow, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you see, I said this the other day. Today, the greatest sin in the eyes of American churchianity is discernment. Practicing discernment. That is a gross sin in the eyes of American Christianity. But it's all over the pages of Scripture. And it is part of the function of the church is that we're the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Not some truth, a truth, your truth, my truth, the truth. And where does that come from? It comes from the king's mandates, Genesis through Revelation. That's why the church submits herself to the word is because this is our identity. We've been purchased by the blood of the lamb. And the blood of the lamb is the king. And so he is our authority. We submit ourselves to him. He's not here with us bodily, reigning on a throne that we can visibly go and visit. But he's very present with us here in his word. And he has given us our, his spirit by which we can understand his word. Why? So that we can be smarter than everyone? No. So that we can understand it and love it and apply it and obey it from the heart. That is how, then, we function as the pillar and buttress of truth, by immersing ourselves in this. Chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy that he's to immerse himself in this. This is so important that Paul tells Timothy that he's supposed to devote his entire life to doctrine. Look at verse 11 in chapter 4. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to what? To casting out demons? To, to healing? To prophecies? To speaking in tongues? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. My friends, if someone is not doing that, if someone is not guarding the good doctrine, the sound doctrine, that last verse is not true. He says, by guarding this, you save yourself and your hearers. So if you, we have abandoned sound doctrine in particular church A or B or Z, what is going on in that church? But we don't want that to be us. We don't want to just sit and point the finger at everyone. We want this to be true here. That we're guarding the sound doctrine that we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth, that we are serving our part in doing that. Now, by the way, we're going to be talking about creeds and confessions as we move forward. This is why they're so good. Like, for example, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. You know why it's so good? It's because it is a sound doctrine. It is a sound summation of biblical teaching. Does it take precedence over Scripture? Of course not. But it is a sound summation of what we mean when we say we want to be biblical. Well, what's biblical to you? Read this. This is it. It'll tell you. Here's what we mean. And it puts you in line with what Christians throughout history who have been faithful to the end, have believed. That's a good thing. Other Christians who have understood this to be the role and the function and the identity of the church, and those are truths that have stood the test of time. There is so much more to say, but we will draw it to a close here. One of the ways that we guard the truth and that we are a pillar and buttress of truth 
is seen in Jesus' command in Matthew 28. Because the king says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So those who have been predestined by Christ have been purchased by Christ, or predestined in Christ have been purchased by Christ and now proclaim Christ until they are gathered into Christ. That is the function of the church. You have only scratched the surface, but I hope that this has given you a better understanding of what the church is. The church is made up of Christ's people who submit to the authority of Christ and who busy themselves growing in and proclaiming Christ until the return of Christ. So everything that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks is going to flow from this from this river, from this ocean. It's going to be built upon this foundation. Everything is going to come from that understanding of the church. Let's pray. Father, I just I pray that this I pray that this was helpful for your people. I pray that they were able to glean something from the rantings of a lunatic. I pray that this was beneficial. I pray that Christ was glorified. And I pray that you help us to love these truths that are in your word, that we would really see this as, as the commands of our king and that we would see it to be our joyful duty to submit to what he says. Give us the strength and the wisdom to apply these truths, this wisdom, to our personal lives and to the life of this church, that Christ may receive his reward for his sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.